the Dharma, what the Buddha taught, goes, as he said, against the stream, against the stream of particularly the way the world often works, where we are taught to look for security amidst possessions, achievements, acclaim, fame, uh, money, uh, material things that we accumulate is uh, the kind of dominant message that we are bombarded with, that security is found that way. And uh, we're also taught that uh, for various reasons when we are faced with challenging experiences that the safest thing to do is not only to accumulate and uh, hoard resources but also to try to figure it out by ourselves, to try to figure out what's going to happen. The Buddha on many, many occasions talked about a peaceful mind that is liberated from needless stress as one that, and he uses this word, animito, I like that word. It's often really badly translated. Uh, nimito means an omen, a portent, a clue, a sign. And unimito means a mind that doesn't hunt for omens or clues or portents or signs, things that will tell us how the future will play out. So it's a mind that doesn't fixate on um, looking for some hidden message, like a Sherlock Holmes looking for some piece of lint or scuff mark or something that will unravel the hidden mystery of how life will play out. And, of course, we have narrative minds and since the dawn of narrative minds, which are re reliant on symbols, words are symbols, images are symbols, we are symbol-bearing creatures. It's probably one of the uh, faculties that separate us from the rest of the species that are on this planet. Uh, symbol-bearing, symbol-using creatures, we look for omens everywhere in our life. We hear the word omen and it sounds kind of outdated, like omens are something that the that people in ancient civilizations look for, and yet, actually, omens looking for signs are completely endemic in our lives, especially when we're faced with the unknown or the overwhelming or the uncertain. Let's look at two examples. The first is the, the new parent who's got this wiggling infant there and they're overwhelmed and what is this thing and oh my God, how's it going to turn out? Are we going to have a smart baby or a, are we going to grow somebody who's a serial killer? So what do parents do? They look for omens. Look at the way I held this block and the... Our baby pointed at it. He's a genius. <laughs> He's so smart. He, he, uh, when he vomited up his food, he was smiling. <laughs> the desperation that parents have to 
to pronounce their kids geniuses is, is always charming to me. I, in the work I do one-on-one -on -one with people, I work with many parents, and they always have some story, some omen, some clue, some experience that reassures them that everything will turn out okay, that their baby is smart and well-adjusted and will have a happy life. And the truth is, of course, you don't know. There's no way, you, I mean, you can discern a few things from the behaviors of, a, of an infant, but you really don't know how it's all going to play out. Another great example is when people start dating someone. And, of course, dating is rife with the possibility of rejection for all reasons we don't understand, but dating could also, it could be something wonderful. You could be connected with someone. And so when we're dating, we look for a sign, an omen, a clue. How is this going to turn out? And very often, dependent upon uh, early experience, we will look for signs in one direction or another. If we grew up with secure relationships, we will look for signs that everything's okay. But if we grew up in an abandoning situation, we'll look for signs <laughs> that we're kind of screwed. <laughs> she didn't return my call in five hours. Or my text message. I texted them <laughs> four hours ago. <laughs> what does it mean? It means I'm screwed. <laughs> He still hasn't texted. So, uh, in new jobs, you go in, you're bombarded with people. What am I doing here? Why did I do this? We look for an omen. It's going to be okay. In all experiences in life, if you think about it, for those of you who just for the first time came to a Dharma Punks meeting tonight, and you're here, and you're like, what is this? There's so many sensations. There's these people and those people and there's that big bowl over there and this weird looking guy with tattoos and what? A, how do I know if this is a good experience or bad? I've got to find something. I've got to single out something that tells me what to think about it. So we're always looking for signs to help us to narrate life and make sense of life and figure out how life's going to play out a handle something we can latch onto because the truth is is that experience is overwhelming there are, in every moment you're going through there are sights sounds physical sensations a whole bunch of thoughts a whole bunch of emotions a whole bunch of of stimuli that you could be overwhelmed with so how do you make sense of it? How do you turn it into something that you can report? Hey, Fred, how was that Dharma Punks meeting you went through? Oh, uh, what, are you going to tell them the entire, every sensation you experienced? No. What we, we do as human beings, sign-bearing, language-using, is we look for some, some little thing to fixate on. It was cold in there. It was crowded. <coughs> It was interesting. It was boring. I had to sit, and there was nothing to look at while I sat. It was great. I sat. There was nothing to look at. I finally found peace. 
sounding more like a George Carlin routine. <laughs> so anyway, uh, somebody you want in the back could could let the desperate in. Uh, so when we're going through transitional unknown experiences where there's a feeling, uh, there's a lot of emotional, what's called upheaval, emotional unrest. Because when we're faced with the unknown in any or any transitional experience in life, uh, it's not simple what we feel. Suppose you're moving in with a girlfriend or boyfriend and people just, societally we expect you to have one emotion. Oh, you must be thrilled. <laughs> You're having a baby. You must be so excited. And, of course, the dominant narrative is, yes, we should feel excited. But actually, any new parent or somebody's moving in with a new partner for the first time, actually, if they're honest, is experiencing terror, <laughs> resentment, uh, confusion, doubt in their own capabilities, excitement. There's a whole host of emotions which are playing out, largely playing out through the body because the emotional mind speaks to us through the body primarily and also just through feelings of excitement or feelings of dread. So when we're going through an important new experience where we don't know the outcome, it could be a scary new experience like waiting for a diagnosis from a doctor or an exciting new experience, getting married, or getting divorced, or whatever. <laughs> but whenever we're overwhelmed with the unprecedented, we want to find a way to distract ourselves from the overwhelming flow of emotions, because overwhelming flows of emotions don't feel good. They don't feel controllable. Why is that? Why is it that having a whole fluid flux of emotional activations when we're faced with unknown feels so uh, uncontrollable? Why do we have negative associations with emotional upheaval like, she was all out of sorts today. I was falling apart then. <laughs> I was unraveling. Well, nobody uses that word, but I just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, so why is this? Well, I have come armed for the first time with a chart, which none of you will be able to read. But it's all right. Just feel good knowing that there was a chart put in front of you, which means it must be true. So, so here is the story of what happens very often, just so you all can see that there's some kind of chart here. This is, I'm going to narrate for you. This is the chart that leads to dis emotional discomfort in life. Uh, leads to repression, leads to feeling uncomfortable with our emotions. So, early on in life, we have what's called a core emotional response. And this is based on the Buddha's chain of uh, causation, the Patish uh, Samapada, and also based on work by emotion-focused therapists uh, like Diane Fosha. So uh, what we have is first an, um, a core emotional experience. So we're, for the first time we're going to school when we're six, or we're in a new class, or we're going to summer camp for the first time. We're faced with the unknown, and we have an emotional response 
a series of emotional responses. In fact, fear, unease, connecting, joy, anticipation, anger, uh, confusion. We're overwhelmed with emotions because we are faced with a new scenario. We don't know how it's going to play out. And then what happens is our emotions receive a negative response from those around us. We feel dismissed, criticized, abandoned. We feel other people find us irritating because we're emotional. And so what we develop is what's known as secondary social emotions, which is shame, guilt, embarrassment. Things that punish us for being who we really are, for having a true self that got emotional. Other people make fun of us because as a young guy amongst the school bullies, bullies we get nervous and they laugh at us or the, the mean girls make fun of the way we're, 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 tw- we're twiddling with our hair or we're, the way we're talking or something about us gets laughed at. And so we feel guilt, shame, embarrassment, hopelessness. And then what we do over life is associating having emotions with abandonment, we seek to repress our emotional life. We don't pay attention to the body. We avoid situations that are emotionally triggering. We deflect the emotions. And especially what we do is we look for omens to tell us how the unknown situations will play out so we don't have to feel all of the activations. We look for a way to figure out how life will turn out. The interesting thing is that when we look for omens, we look for only really two kinds of omens. We look for the omen which is everything will turn out great omen. So you're waiting, you know, you're dating somebody new. Oh, I can picture the, the wedding. I can picture us on vacation together. I can, I can picture me meeting all his friends and them loving me because I'm so charming. And then there's the catastrophizing, which is another word for saying, I'm screwed. So we go from one extreme to the other. And the goal is, in this, to give ourselves the most pleasant emotional response and the most negative. And you would think that going into catastrophizing, visualizing the worst possible outcome, abandonment, rejection, being fired, having cancer, whatever it is that we fear, going into the catastrophizing would be something that we wouldn't want to do. We'd want to wait until it actually happens. But no, actually, when you are hit with a a, fa- a wonderful, positive visualization of an outcome or a catastrophe, it simplifies the emotion. It simplifies the emotional flow to either dread or to joy. It, in other words, we would prefer to feel one thing, even if that one thing is terrible, rather than feeling the unpredictable flow, and I'm giving you a visual now, so feel good about that, because now it's an audio-visual experience, including wave-like motions, which in no way convey emotions, but I'm doing it anyway. So the idea is that we find, even feeling 
terrible and abandoned and rejected, we feel preferable to not knowing. Because not knowing is disorienting. It creates a whole host of different emotions and a whole host of thoughts trying to figure it out. And that is unpleasant. So, we associate emotion, a flow of emotions with abandonment, but that's not it only. We also associate having emotional upheaval, unpredictable, unsettled emotions. We associate with what psychologists call disintegration anxiety, which is the feel, fear that our personality will come apart, that our identity will break apart. We won't be able to re-glue ourselves back together. We all, in the course of our adult life, have, out of trial and error, pieced together a personality, a way that we talk and act and think and perceive the world. And it's largely put together to get love from everyone around us, to get acceptance, to, to feel that we'll survive in a world of other people, because we are social beings. So we construct identities, and when we start to feel a whole flux and upheaval of emotions, it creates a, a dread that we won't be able to put our, um, our personality back together again. I'll become unraveled, unglued. I won't be able to find a social self to present to other people anymore. And it creates what's called neurotic anxiety, which is other people, like those core experiences we talked about earlier, will somehow see my core, true, emotional flux, upheaval, and they won't like me. They won't like the emotional me. They vastly prefer the depressed me or the excited me, but they don't want to see the me that is, has a whole host of emotions. And the sad fact is that any important experience in life, any, any experience in life that's transitional, any experience in life where we're taking a risk, any experience in life where we're actually seeking growth, involves emotional upheaval. It's just the natural response to going into the unknown. And the unknown is where there's growth. The unknown is where there's change. But the unknown also comes at the price of experiencing emotional upheaval. So, given that moving into the unknown involves emotional upheaval, what do we do? Again, we look for omens, clues, how this is going to play out, anything, tell me how my life's going to turn out, how is this new job going to play out, how is this new relationship, I can't be with the unknown. The Buddha calls it ditti upadana, which means clinging to ideas that will help us interpret the world. We cling to this, we have to figure it out, because if we don't figure it out, we feel all those messy emotions that don't fit together into one nice, uh, lovable package. We fear the rejection, the fact that we won't look good and that our personalities won't be uh, able to be put back together in a charming way. 
the Buddha in the Sala Sutta says something really fascinating. Without omens, we have to live with the unknown. And life feels difficult and stressful. So the Buddha is saying when we let go of the omens, the need to figure out how our life is going to play out, the need to worry it out, the need to predict the future, we're left with those feelings of the unknown and it's difficult. And no matter what we imagine, life will always turn out differently. So he's saying it's a waste even to try to figure it out. In worrying and searching for omens, and here's the best part, we separate ourselves from others. We grow apart from our community and we abandon living at that very moment. What he's saying is that in trying to figure out how life will play out, seizing onto omens and clues and hints and how's this, what's going to happen to me and, and how is this new relationship, this new friendship, this new job, this new trip, this new endeavor, this new business, how is it all going to play out? In that worrying, we separate ourselves from where other people are. We separate ourselves from our emotions. We separate ourselves from really being alive. And we go into a little shell of trying to figure it all out. Figuring it all out is perhaps the greatest addiction, even more so than drinking or drugs. Because drinking and drugs, like figuring it all out, are a way to try to numb feelings and emotions that we don't feel comfortable with. In figuring it out, we're trying to distract ourselves from feeling that flux is intuition or a gut feeling the same as looking to try to figure it all out? Is it a simplified way to not feel feelings? And actually, intuition is a product of the right hemisphere and the amygdala, the emotional mind, in other words. It's not the left hemisphere conceptual figuring it out, solving. It's uh, the way it works. And the Buddha called intuition Vedana. We call it gut feelings. There's a wonderful book actually called Gut Feelings which explains the neurology of gut feelings. But essentially what happens is earlier in life we have emotional experiences associated with specific events. And then the, uh, when we have that experience earlier on, if it's a frightening event, we associate the experience with a tightness in the belly a gathering, a clutching in the chest, uh, you know, whatever body state we go into to survive that experience, we associate the event. So suppose you're in a car accident, you associate the screeching of tires, the imminent impact with the song that's on the radio and the body state that you go in. So the next time you hear that song on the radio or you're on the same street, anything can re-trigger the gut feeling of, oh, I'm not safe. So we can create gut feelings around things that literally are threatening or things that have nothing to do with an actual threat. Suppose you're in second grade and a teacher gives you a spot test and then fail the test and that day the teacher was wearing a blue cardigan, you will very likely create a negative association with blue cardigans. And as an adult, when you see someone wearing a blue cardigan, you will have a gut feeling to not trust them because that's how, that's how gut feelings are formulated by early 
emotional activations. We associate all the stimuli that's present together, and it creates then feelings of, I'm not safe, or I'm safe in the future. So, one time in your life, you're very hungry, you eat uh, tuna melt, and it tastes bad, and you feel disappointed. You might associate from that point on, tuna melts will create a negative intuition. Other situations can uh, also cause negative feelings. You're in fourth grade, and a teacher uh, asks you to show your drawing to the class, and everybody laughs at your drawing. From that point on, doing, showing your creative ideas to other people might create a gut feeling of fear. So very often, our gut feelings are very old. On the other hand, sometimes they're true. You know, if you're an interior designer and you've designed thousands of rooms and somebody asks you, should I paint this room yellow or green, you don't go into a logical figuring it out. You just follow your gut because your gut will accrue all the different times you've used yellow and green and all the different outcomes and you'll follow your gut. I actually think that yellow works with more or green works with more you know, furniture choices that allow me to have more liberty in how I'm going to fill up this room, so let's paint the walls green. It's worth trusting your gut when you're in a situation where you absolutely have a great deal of experience that's trustworthy, like a job or something that you've spent a lot of time doing. But when you're moving into the unknown, Gut feelings are often imported from completely different earlier experiences that have nothing to do with the adult variation. As adults, we go into a new job, we are surrounded by people we don't know, we don't know their names, we're given thousands of names to learn the first day, and that reminds us of the time we were in first grade and we were surrounded by new kids that we didn't know, and first grade didn't turn out well, so I should feel scared and my gut tells me I, don't, I didn't make a good choice. So, no, it's not, a, it's not a good thing to follow in the unknown unless you're absolutely sure it's in an endeavor, an arena where you have a lot of experience. It's not the same as the figuring it out mind, but it can be just as simplifying and ultimately misleading as the figure it out mind. So, it's not a surprise that the core solution to being with transitional experiences and unknown experiences is to be able to detach from the figuring it out mind and go back into the body to be with the core emotions that need to be felt. It's through feeling those emotions that we can connect with others in a meaningful way. When I try to connect with you by simply telling you how I think my life will turn out, all you're hearing is an idea, and I don't feel in any way you deeply get me. But if I tell you I'm frightened, I'm excited, I'm worried, I'm agitated, I'm doubtful, I'm lost, I'm you, in seeing me talk about it, and seeing my emotions, and hearing the tone of my voice, and hearing me try to convey my emotions, that is what deeply connects us and what provides me with security. And emotions themselves don't go away if we distract ourselves seeking to figure it all out. Emotions essentially are repressed 
and they will then look for other ways to come out. They will search through ways to express themselves. So if we don't feel our fear, our fear will come out attached to other situations, other experiences. If we don't feel the fear of getting married or getting into a new relationship, we'll feel the fear about our job or about our friendships or about paying the rent. It will simply deflect itself into another outlet because emotions don't go away. They simply seek our attention and they pack themselves into whole different areas of our lives that they shouldn't be attached to. People, for example, who don't feel the frustration with their jobs come home and take it out on their families and their loved ones because they don't allow themselves to feel the anger or the frustration or the disappointment with their work lives. Likewise, when we don't allow ourselves to feel all the emotions associated with a transitional experience, we will simply push down those emotions for a while and they will come out with a vengeance in areas of our life that they really are not really attached to. So the core is one. Return to the body. If the emotions are really overwhelming and too, too difficult to be with at first, then just do a meta practice. One, just may I be peaceful, may I be peaceful, may I feel safe, may I feel loved. Just repeating a meta phrase until there's a little bit of a di diminution of the emotion so that we can then go into the body and create a safe container because emotions really what they want is to be felt. That's what is called emotional processing. When you feel the emotions, allowing them to arise, allowing them to crescendo and then pass, that is what processes an emotional activation. And then finally, we communicate that emotion to a friend who doesn't try to solve or fix us, but just listens compassionately. Now you might say that last part is the most difficult, the talking about it, because my friends and my family and the people in my life, they try to sort out my problems, they try to tell me what to do, they try to intervene and give me instructions. And yes, that is not what we need. What we need is somebody to simply listen and mirror the emotions, which means nod, looks a little bit sad when we're sad, look a little bit hopeful when we're hopeful, look a little bit confused when we're doubtful. Somebody simply to, to see us, to see our emotions for what they are. I was reading uh, a great child developmental psychologist said the most important thing for an infant after it's born is to be seen in the eyes of the other, which means the baby is simply looking to express its emotions and have its emotions be seen by its mother and be mirrored back. That's what we seek as human beings. We are pack animals, and the thing that makes us feel safe is not having somebody else tell us what to do, or solve our problems, or fix us, what we seek is someone to see us, to see our true selves. And what are our true selves? The pure emotions that are nonverbal, that arise 
the sadness, the grief, the loneliness, all of it, not just the pretty emotions. So sometimes that means we have to be very demanding with our friends. We have to say, I know when I talk about the fact that I'm getting married and I'm terrified as well as excited, I know you're going to want to reassure me and tell me that my partner is great. I know that when I tell you that I'm having real doubts about my job, that you're going to want to tell me that it's all going to turn out swell. But that's not what we need. And so we have to be clear to our friends and say, no, what I really need is for you just to listen, just to be there, just to hold what I say, to mirror it back. If you can't do that, it's okay. I'll find somebody else, but that's what my needs are. When we finally can express the emotions that we've held in the body, it completes the circuit, and it actually allows us to be with the unknown, to be with the transitional, to be with the scary. Part of the work I've done in volunteering at hospices, volunteering teaching meditation to prisoners on release from Rikers, uh, working with people one-on-one, is I've seen that they don't need me to tell them what to do. What they need me is to point them away from figuring out life back to what their emotions are, and then for me to sit and be with their emotions. And I'd like you to bring to mind the salient image associated with an unpleasant event or difficult experience that you've had recently. could be an interpersonal event or just a experience that caused some unrest, discomfort, agitation. Just hold the image in mind. Don't replay the entire story. Just the most single image that is perhaps triggering and then just ask how does it feel and see if while holding the image you can find in the body some stirring of an emotional activation a feeling associated with the experience whatever it is you feel is okay Some of you will find it's effortlessly easy to feel the emotion. Some will find that the image doesn't trigger any emotional core embodied response. And if that's the case, just choose another image or just ask a question that's a little bit more triggering. How does it feel to be disappointed, separated, not cared for, and just feel the experience in the body and don't give in to the mind's tendency to want to get lost in thought as a distraction from the feeling, just be with the feeling itself, creating a safe container, allowing the Pain, rather than running from our 
emotions, feeling them, the direct expression of sadness or loss or grief or disappointment. Just creating a safe space to be with anything you need to feel. And finally, sending nurturing, caring, kind, compassionate thoughts to whatever needs to be felt, literally addressing the emotional tensions or contractions or tightness in the stomach or chest or throat, just sending a message from the mind to the body saying it's okay. I'm here with you, I'll take care of you, I won't abandon you, I won't run from you. So let go, if it's still there, of any image you selected to activate the emotion and bring to mind an image of yourself just sitting here. And once again, use a metaphrase, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I feel safe, may I feel loved, may I feel connected, any phrase you want.
So, as we move now to the time to transition from the meditation to a more balanced awareness, balance between internal and external attention, first always take a moment after meditation just to feel good about your practice. It doesn't matter whether the mind was jumping, or you fell asleep, or it was emotionally difficult. Simply sitting, putting the effort into cultivate some inner ease, serenity, attention, insight, is so skillful in that It gives us another source of security and peace rather than constantly looking for security amidst materialist concerns to be able to have a source of peace that is unconditionally available, that doesn't use the world's resources that doesn't exploit or harm others, that makes us more skillful with other people, that creates very healthy physical and mental states. It's a blameless practice. And finally, when you hear the sound of the bowl, it's tempting to simply open one's eyes and look around, and of course what happens is sight is so filled with stimuli that it grabs up all of our attention and we lose this very, very difficult to achieve awareness where we're in touch with the body and our moods and our feelings and our emotions. We tend to abandon internal awareness in favor of visual images thoughts and ideas. So see if you can keep some of the awareness at home and when you hear the sound, just slowly open your eyes looking at the ground, integrating sight into all the awareness that you've cultivated.